Well, good morning again. Have any of you ever uh, wrestled when you were kids? Or maybe you still wrestle, I shouldn't assume. Andrew back there. Now that would be really difficult. I wouldn't even try. Anyone else? Any other wrestlers? Okay, what about, have any of you ever wrestled with God? Have you ever had a time, maybe uh, something God has done or hasn't done, and you just wrestle with them? Or as I like to say, wrestle. Carson loves to, or Carson. Liberty loves to wrestle. I've done that before, but Liberty loves to wrestle with me. She loves to just sit there, and we, we play monster, and we wrestle each other. But there's something when, uh, when we are wrestling with God, something's happened in our life. Maybe it's something that's happened that we really question, and we think, God, why did you do that? Why did you allow that to happen? Or why didn't you do this? God, I asked you, I needed, and you didn't do this. Has anyone here, I won't ask you to put your hands up, but has anyone else ever been through that? Have you ever just had a time when you've just been maybe angry at God? And you say, how could you? How could you do that? And you question maybe his goodness. You say, well, I know God is good, but I, I'm not sure right now. And wrestling is just something so important for all of us to go through. You know, the faith is one thing, but an untested faith is brittle and weak. But a faith that has gone through the darkest night of the soul, a faith that has gone through hardships, and when you have really wrestled with God through some of the difficult things, that's when it really becomes a strong faith. The last chapter of Jonah, we get to see that Jonah's wrestling with God. Jonah doesn't understand what God is doing. And Jonah is upset, even to the point of, he says, I'd rather be dead than go through what I'm going through. And so Jonah is one of the many biblical people that wrestled with God, but he's certainly not alone. Abraham wrestled with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He went back and forth with God and said, how could you destroy it? And he landed with, well, if I find 10 good men, 10 good people that follow you, then will you not destroy the city? And God says, yes, but there's nobody. He can find nobody that follows after God. And so the the city gets destroyed. And Moses wrestles with God over and over again. He intercedes on behalf of Israel. God wants to wipe out Israel. He says, I'll start over with you. But Moses wrestles with God and says, how could you? The other nations will look down and say, God wasn't powerful enough to save this people. And then there's Jacob, who literally wrestled with God all night. An angel of the Lord. Some people think it's a, called a theophany. It's the appearance of Jesus before he had an earthly form. But wrestling with God is actually a necessary part of our faith. And we must wrestle with God in order to know God and to become more and more like God. That's such an important part of our faith. If we just have a faith that is secondhand, that our parents told us, and that's why we believe, then that's not enough. We have to wrestle through it ourselves. And in order to understand uh, Jonah's struggle, we must understand what he was wrestling about. And so essentially, Jonah is wrestling with God about God's compassion. Jonah wishes that God would have a strict justice. He wished that God would just punish the evildoers, and in this case, the Ninevites, But instead, God chooses to show them compassion. And Jonah cannot stand that. And all throughout the the very first bit of the book of Jonah, Jonah is told by God, go to Nineveh and preach that they're going to get destroyed. And Jonah runs away. 
And finally in this chapter we learn why. He actually comes out and says what it is. And this strict justice is actually something that we all have ingrained in us. It's common sense. When, uh, when we were little kids, and those of us with little kids know that one of the, the few phrases that comes out of a kid's mouth very often after the playground is, that's not fair. That's not fair. That happens. Or maybe you've said this yourself, maybe in your own head or out loud, I cannot believe that God would allow fill in the blank. I cannot believe that God would do fill in the blank. Or I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. One of the, uh, one of the most common complaints about uh, God of the Bible and one of the most common criticisms is if God is so good, why is there so much suffering in the world? And that's the essence of Jonah's complaint here. He wants God to wipe out these evil people. And so the type of compassion, though, that God shows is that he can actually relieve the guilt of the guilty and somehow his justice isn't weakened. So we think if someone isn't punished, that does wrong, that somehow justice isn't being done. But God actually has a long view of life. Somehow God marries compassion with justice that we just can't quite grasp. It's not as black and white as we may think it is. And the stages that God actually chooses to show compassion that we've seen in Jonah is, first of all, the preaching of judgment, followed by repentance, which isn't just simply confession, but it's actually action and deeds. And finally, it's God's compassion on those who have truly repented. That's the progression. And so the type of compassion and forgiveness that we see in the Bible is unheard of in other religions. They actually think it's just folly. Salvation by grace alone is what uh, Christians who stick to the Bible believe. That it is nothing that we could possibly do to earn grace. It's nothing that we could possibly do to earn God's forgiveness. It's only because he wants to forgive us. If we repent, it's still a gift that he gives us, that we are saved. And even other religions, they may believe that repentance is possible. Someone who's done bad, they'll ask for forgiveness and they think it's possible. But the, the core of every other religion believes that if your good outweighs your bad, whatever words they would use to describe that, karma, anything, is that if your good outweighs your bad, then you make it into paradise. But if your good does not outweigh your bad, if your bad is heavier, your worse, your bad your evil deeds is heavier than your good deeds then you go to eternal punishment that's the weight of justice by most religions but that common sense justice isn't actually how God operates in the world an established religion always prefers this kind of strict justice to the justice that God actually shows us so today as we're finishing off our series on Jonah we've seen that God's mercy is at work in chapter 3, Jonah finally uh, presented the message of destruction on Nineveh. And miraculously, even though he doesn't tell the people to repent, all he says is in 40 days you will be overthrown. Uh, it's a simple six-word sermon. And the people repent. They sit down, they have sackcloth and ashes. Even the king steps off the throne, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and sits in the dust. And then they pray to God the God that they never believed in, the God that they never followed, and they're miraculously saved. It says that God relented with compassion. 
And so if you would join uh, in just following along in your head, I'm reading out of Jonah 4, 1 to 11. So you can feel free to swipe or to flip or just to look on the screen as I read Jonah 4, 1 to 11. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. I'll, I'll step back a verse. In verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And then 4.1 says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also so many animals. May God bless the reading of his word. So here in Jonah, we have an interesting... Uh, we have an interesting interplay between God and Jonah. And, uh, you know, if God was the, the wrathful, zealous, uh, just fickle God that sometimes people believe in, that if you step out of line, he'd zap you, I'm pretty sure Jonah would have died a few times here. He was even asking for it. He said, I'm so angry, I wish I could, would die. But God actually has compassion even on Jonah even on his hard-heartedness, even on his hard-headedness, which means there's opportunities for us all, even me. And right in the first, very first verse of this, we see that God miraculously forgives Nineveh and that Jonah is greatly displeased. Now, Jonah was a prophet of God. His job, his career was to go and tell people about God. And I said this last week, but uh, could you imagine preaching a sermon and a whole city of people instantly give faith to Jesus? I know I'd love for that kind of results. One sermon, a full city, six words. I know, if you do like a person per word, that's pretty amazing. So that's what, 20,000, I'm not even a math major, 20,000 people saved per word. Now, I don't get anywhere near those results, so I'm sorry, but I do my best. 
But these people repent, and Jonah's angry. Just imagine that. People give their lives to Jesus, and his response is anger. So what's going on there? Jonah tries to explain. He ran in the first place because he knew that God was compassionate, and he didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. When he heard of Nineveh's impending destruction, was he happy? Did he hope that, what he hoped, what he said, is that if he ran away, that God would destroy them before he got there and had the opportunity to preach to them? How twisted is that? Can you imagine that being that angry at a people that you wish that they would die? Now, I know uh, for all of us that could never happen. But Jesus, uh, Jesus said one of the commandments in the Bible is, Thou shall not kill. And uh, better translations will actually say you should not murder. Because there's times and opportunities where uh, people are allowed to kill each other in self-defense, things like that. But you should not murder. But Jesus takes it one step further. And he said, if you've held anger in your heart against someone, you've murdered them with your own heart. So we should always be careful when we're judging other people. So Jonah had anger in his heart towards these people, and he wanted them dead. But I'm sure all of us have been angry with one person one time or another. And so Jonah is so upset with God's mercy that he says he wants to die. Talk about being melodramatic. Now, Jonah was a grown man, and we always make fun of teenagers for being melodramatic. But what I've, uh, what I've been reading and studying about psychology lately is that uh, uh, children actually are just more honest with their emotions. And so teenagers, they're just a little bit more expressive with their emotions. As adults, we have the same feelings, we have the same things, but we just come up with better coping mechanisms. We have better ways of hiding it. We have better ways of hiding our melodrama or using fancier terms to justify ourselves. But we're really no different. And so Jonah is being melodramatic, but if you think about what's happened in the story, Jonah uh, deserved the punishment because he ran away from God. He deliberately disobeyed Jesus, or deliberately disobeyed the word of God, rather. And so he's thrown overboard, and it stops the storm, and then he's miraculously saved by a fish. And Jonah has this fancy long prayer using uh, different scripture references to come in. And he thanks God and says, salvation comes from God alone. So Jonah's so happy to receive undeserved grace and compassion. And yet when other people receive that same grace, he's upset about it. And so Jonah wants grace for himself, but he wants justice for other people. He wants justice for his enemies, but grace for himself. And so his attitude towards these people is so much more dramatic because of the amazing gift of life that he's been given, the second chance that God gave. And Jonah knew that if he preached to Nineveh, he knew God's heart. He was a, a student of the word. So he knew in, his, in uh, Exodus 34, 6 to 7, it has this beautiful uh, verse that he quotes, that God is slow to anger, that he's compassionate He's, uh, sorry, he's gracious and merciful, he's compassionate, he's abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So God's wrath is a temporary result of human disobedience, but his love and his mercy are actually part of his character. God wants to show love and mercy and grace to people, but his wrath is a direct result of unrepentance and hate against him. So God doesn't stay angry forever. He's slow to anger, 
And he's actually also quick to disperse his anger. So his wrath is, always has a way to get away from it. So Jonah, like Israel, and sometimes even like the church, is more comfortable with God's punishment than with God's mercy. And the reason that uh, it's like that is we like things to be simple and straightforward and neat. We want an A plus B equals C approach to everything. We want to know what are, the, what are the straight lines to faith? What are the straight lines? But people are complicated. Uh, sin is fairly black and white, but sometimes we muddy the waters and try and make it gray. But God doesn't fit into our neat little boxes, unfortunately. God is a big God. And mercy and grace sometimes are messy. And so we will look at someone and we only have a part of the picture. And we think they're all bad. They did this to me. They said this to me. They're just totally a terrible person. But God will look at them and say, well, do you know what somebody else said to them before they said that thing to you? Do you know what they're going through? Do you imagine the pain that they're going through? There's a common phrase that says, hurting people hurt people. And we only ever have part of the picture. But when we look at others, we look at them and think, well, they're rude. They need to be held accountable for their actions. But then we do something, and we know the background of our own story. And so we say, well, I did that, but. And so we give ourselves grace. We give ourselves mercy. But then we want other people to be held accountable. Now, again, I won't show for, uh, go for a show of hands, but I'm sure that we could all echo with that. Uh, I have a sister who's, uh, who's not a follower of Jesus, and one time I was trying to talk to her about what it means uh, to follow God. And I tried to talk about the, uh, the justice argument, because uh, no matter what uh, you believe, if you uh, form your own sets of opinions and beliefs outside of the Bible, they're fluid. They're going to change. Because let's say you say that, uh, that hitting is wrong, but then sometimes something happens that you get so mad that you hit somebody, you're not going to hold yourself against that standard. Instead, you're going to change your standard. You're never going to be condemned by your own standard. That's just not how humans work. You wouldn't say, this is the standard, and I'm always going to follow it, because you'll break it eventually. But the true standard, an unchanging standard, is the Bible. That says we're all guilty. No one is righteous, not even one. The only person who has ever been righteous is Jesus the Christ. He is the only one that can possibly say, I have never done something wrong. The rest of us, we've all done something wrong. And so all of us are only, if we hold to a strict justice, that if you do wrong, you deserve to die, then we all deserve to die. That's what the Bible says. And so Jonah is trying to have a double standard and we all, at one time or another, try to have a double standard. But the Bible doesn't give us that. There's one standard. Are you as righteous as Jesus or not? That's the comparison. We can't compare ourselves to someone easy to pick on like Hitler and say, well, I'm better than Hitler. So, of course, he's going to go to hell. But me, me, I'm a little bit better than, well, I'd hope a lot a bit better. But I'm better than him. But that's not the comparison. The comparison is us to Jesus. And it, if you notice, uh, Jonah's response to, uh, to the situation is anger. And God actually right away confronts him. He doesn't directly respond to Jonah's death wish, but he does ask, are you right to be angry? 
God's trying to teach Jonah a lesson here. He's trying to teach him about where the anger in his heart is coming from. And so ironically, uh, there's a lot of irony in this book, but ironically, uh, Jonah's mad at God for not being more angry. He wants God to be so angry and so wrathful that he just destroys Nineveh. But instead, God is slow to anger, and he relents from this anger, and Jonah's mad at him for it. So Jonah's angry that God's not angry. Now, I like irony, but that just goes. And so he, he wishes that God would just be so angry, he'd just destroy them all. And uh, God also has a sense of humor because it says that God sends a scorching wind and a scorching heat. And so Jonah is, uh, is angry. And the Hebrew word for angry is actually the same word as too hot. So God, uh, when Jonah says, I'm so angry, and which means too hot, I'm, I'm so too hot. And then God says, well, you're hot now, just wait. This is the Middle East. I'm going to send a scorching east wind and a scorching sun. And so it makes him even more angry. And so after uh, God's question, Jonah plays the silent treatment with God. Now, husbands, I won't ask for a show of hands here, but I, and I've also done the silent treatment, so women, I could ask the same. I won't ask for a show of hands. But sometimes when we don't have something to say, we just, we just get silent. We just, we just fume silently. And, he's, and it says he's sitting there outside of Nineveh waiting to see what God does. He's hoping that maybe God will change his mind, that God will still destroy Nineveh. He's maybe hoping that the Nineveh will undo their repentance. Now that they see that God's not destroying them, maybe they'll quickly flip, and then God will destroy them. And so Jonah's sitting there. He's too hot. And uh, in verse 6, it says that God provided a vine. He provided a plant that grew quickly and covered him. So Jonah's uh, little shelter that he made, his little booth, wasn't sufficient. So God sent him this vine to protect him from the scorching heat. And uh, again, there's another little play on, here, on words here. It says that the vine eased his, uh, his, him from the sun. Or another word is to deliver. It delivered him from the heat, which can mean both shade him from distress or, shade him, or deliver him from his wickedness. Because Jonah here has some unjust anger. He doesn't have a right to be angry. And yet, God delivers him from the sun. But the Bible is kind of being subtle here and telling us that God doesn't only want to deliver him from his being too hot from the sun. He wants to deliver him from his own sinful anger. And then Jonah's response to the vine is to show great joy. Now, someone who loves Jesus and loves God and has been shown grace and mercy and the great love of God Shouldn't the thing that makes us most joyful is somebody else experiencing that love? And Jonah just preached a message of repentance, and 120,000 people declare that their obedience is to God. And he's angry. God makes this little plant that gives him a little bit of shade. And I like to think of Jonah as bald, so he's, he's got a little bit of uh, redness going on because of the hot sun. And God gave him shade, and he responds with great joy. How silly is that? How hard-hearted do you have to be that you're upset people are saved, but you're happy about a little bit of shade? Can you just imagine how the depth of that? His irony is his concern for the plant versus people. 
He cares more about a green leafy plant than about people. And the very next day, God provided the plant. The very next day, God provides a worm to eat the plant. And uh, verses 6 and 7 both start in the same way. But in verse 6, it says God provided help. And in 7, it says God provided harm, essentially. So God is both the creator God. He both creates things. And because he creates, he also uh, has every right to destroy. And in this case, he destroys the plant. So God loves to show mercy and compassion. But he's still a holy God. And so those who are unrepentant and refuse his mercy, he still has divine justice that he will show. And uh, for scholars of Bible history, uh, the Bible isn't, isn't uh, the Old Testament especially, isn't in chronological order. And so actually at this time when uh, Jonah was included in the Bible, they knew that Assyria, the, the place that Nineveh is a part of, had actually come in and destroy Israel. They had taken over Israel. It had already been a prophecy. They had destroyed Israel. And Jonah knew, uh, knew that it was unlikely that the people of, of Nineveh's repentance would last. And it didn't. And so this very well could be a foreshadowing of Israel's ultimate judgment by the Assyrians in the years to follow. God provides life, and he can take it away as well. And then in verse 8, God sends this scorching east wind, again a provision of God, and Jonah, in his, uh, in his angry way, again, asks for death. He says, I'm so mad, I just want to die. And again, Jonah is uh, asked a question of God. He says, are you right to be angry about the vine? This is almost identical to verse 4. And Jonah, first time, didn't respond, but now he does. He responds out of anger. He says, of course, I have every right to be angry. You gave me this vine, and you took it away. So I'm angry. And uh, anger itself is a fairly neutral, uh, a fairly neutral uh, emotion. The Bible never actually says don't be angry. It says in your anger do not sin. And sometimes when we're angry, it becomes easier to sin. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus, I think, displayed anger in the temple when he's flipping over uh, tables and uh, a whip cord. And uh, the Bible doesn't specifically say Jesus is angry, so that's up to your uh, interpretation there. But I think he was angry. I think he was upset. I think he had a holy anger and upset at this. And I've uh, I've had a friend who's yelled at me before, and I've talked to him after, and he said, no, it was a holy anger. And I said, well, <laughs> he said some very mean things. It wasn't, it wasn't truth and love. It was, it was maybe the love was there, but meanness came in too. And so sometimes, as humans, it's hard to be angry and not sin. But anger isn't always wrong. That's just a little side note here. But Jonah's upset with God because of the way he provides comfort and then takes it away. And so Jonah's rationale is uh, that he just wants what's comfortable. He just wants a comfortable life. He just wants God to get him to do whatever is easy. But God's ways are above our understanding. Now, we don't know why God sometimes provides and sometimes takes away. Because God's plans are bigger than our plans. And I wish we knew. I wish we knew why God always did the way he did things. But we don't. In verse 10 and 11, the very last word belongs to the Lord. God has given Jonah his chance to express his thoughts, his feelings, his anger. But finally, uh, God responds. 
And just once again, in 10 to 11, he says, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Now, in the English translation, this ends with a question mark. That's the end. A question. Should not God be concerned for the 120,000 people and the livestock that are in the town? Now, the, the question that is uh, obvious, the answer is obvious. Yes, God should be concerned. But the question that, that God doesn't say, but is in there, shouldn't we be concerned? Shouldn't Jonah be concerned? Now, the Bible, this, this chapter ends on a cliffhanger. I had uh, a person a few weeks ago say, well, I love Jonah, but I want to know what happens after. I want to I know the rest of the story. You guys ever, that, that radio program, I can't remember the guy's name, but, and that's the rest of the story. I wish I knew the rest too. But sometimes I think God does, well, I know that God does these things on purpose. Because if we knew how Jonah responded, then maybe it doesn't quite fit our story. And God means for it to end on this tension. Shouldn't we be concerned for others? Now, God is the source of life, and he has every right to take it away. But the Bible says that God is gracious, compassionate, which is to be soft like a womb, it says. And Jonah actually harbored the knowledge of this from God, or from the sailors and from the Ninevites. He knew this. He knew that God was compassionate and soft like a womb. I think that's a, a beautiful way of saying it. Just that, that love of God, that compassion, that care. And thirdly, that he's slow to anger. Uh, some of the translations say that it's like a burning anger that slowly simmers. It's like a slow crock pot. And he's abounding in love. This is the unconditional love of Jesus that receives the repentant sinner into reconciliation with God. He's abounding in love. Not just he has a little bit of love, but he has a whole lot of love. And that he relents from sending calamity. So God's compassion is this agonizing compassion. It's actually this compassion that, the compassion that hurts him. When God chooses to forgive people, it's not that the pain of their anger and the pain of their sin just goes away. Anytime that we do something wrong, there's a, there's a consequence. And there's various consequences for every uh, disobedient action. But there's a cost to sin. But God's compassion says that he takes that cost on himself when he forgives people. He takes on the pain. He takes on the hurt. It's like a parent who's disciplining a willfully disobedient child. Unless the parent has serious issues, they take no pleasure in disciplining their child. But they do it because it's the best. And so when they forgive that child, maybe a child breaks a window and you forgive that child. If they're old enough, maybe you make them pay for it. But if they're not, you take the cost on yourself. And you take the cost because you love them. 
And God's mercy and forgiveness can't be controlled. We can't manipulate God into doing what we want. And all who attempt to limit God's gracious actions, they share Jonah's protest. They say, why would you forgive that person? That person doesn't deserve forgiveness. And maybe we don't, uh, maybe we don't even say that out loud, but maybe we think it. Maybe we think that person isn't worthy. Yeah, I'm not going to tell that person about Jesus because they're just an angry person. It would cost me something. And so often we are like Jonah, that we only want God to be gracious to us, but we always don't want to be gracious to others. But God's question to Jonah is the, one of the most important in the whole book. It says, have you any right to be angry? And it's not, uh, it's not a legal question, it's a moral one. And in the uh, Genesis 4-6, God asked Cain uh, the same question. Cain and Abel were the first brothers ever born in the Bible, and they... Uh, and they uh, came along, and uh, Abel was uh, raised livestock, and Cain raised crops. And they brought their sacrifices to God. And God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice, but he accepted Abel's sacrifice. And that could be a whole sermon in itself why that is. But uh, God doesn't accept it, and his response to God is to be angry. And so God asked this question, and he doesn't say anything. What he does is he goes out and murders his brother. His anger actually leads him to the point of way more sin. And so here God asks the question, have you any right to be angry? And Jonah's at a crossroads, and we don't know what he does. We don't know how he answers. But we could even say that question of ourselves. Have we any right to be angry? Or put differently, does God owe us anything? Is there anything that we have done that God has to pay us back? God questions the value of human anger. He uses the vine and the worm as an opportunity to teach Jonah about compassion and understanding our own salvation. God is the provider. If we, even if we know that we are saved, we have that assurance. We haven't earned it. But often we'll look around at the world around us and say, well, I'm better than them because I'm saved and they're not saved. But just like Jonah's anger, that's ridiculous. If you are saved, it does not make you any better than any other person. It just means you're, you have experienced the grace of God and they have yet to experience that grace. And so the final question of the book is put to us as well. Should God care for those outside of what we would call the family of God? Should God be concerned with the others in the world? Those who are going through hardships and trying to get through life in their own intelligence, in their own strength. They're just trying to put the pieces together. And whose job is it to say who is worthy of salvation? You know, uh, if we say, well, that person isn't, they're not good enough. And we're putting ourselves on the throne of God's heart rather than us. There's only room for one God in our lives, and it can either be us or Jesus. That's it. So if we're looking at others and say they're not worthy, then we've mistaken it because actually none of us are worthy. None of us can earn salvation. And so God wants us to know and to understand the risks that it takes to follow Jesus. And he wants to say, it may cost you something. 
It may cost you everything, but are you willing to follow me with your whole life, no matter the cost? We don't need to bring God anywhere. We don't need to think that if we go to a homeless shelter, if we go somewhere, that we're bringing God to those people, because God's already there. God's already at work in the lives of those around us. We just need to show up and be able to be used by him. And so God's concern, as I said, is to take action with tears flowing down the cheeks, some translation says. It's his choice to take on the suffering of the world. And so he bears the weight of sin. So just even as we celebrated communion, Jesus chose to suffer in our place. Sin naturally results in suffering. And instead of tears flowing down the cheeks of those who have sinned, the tears flowed down Jesus' cheeks instead. In the Garden of uh, Gethsemane on the night when uh, he was betrayed and he knew he'd be heading to the cross, he was so stressed and so concerned that he actually sweat drops of blood. That absolute agony and suffering that Jesus went through was so that we don't have to. So that we don't have to suffer to the point of death for our sins. When uh, When Jesus offers us salvation, it's an exchange of his death for our life. We give him our lives and say, your will be done. Do whatever you want. And that doesn't mean that uh, this, uh, this temporary suffering ends. I'm not going to stand up here and say that life gets easier and better and is just always amazing when you become a Christian. But it's far better. It's far richer. And your suffering has a purpose. Outside of faith in Jesus, life is still hard. Life still has pain. Loved ones still die. People still get sick. But we can have an eternal perspective and realize this suffering is temporary. But outside of faith in Jesus, suffering is eternal. There's no separation from suffering outside of God. And the, uh, the key word last week was that uh, the city of Nineveh would be overthrown. It would be turned upside down. And that's what life in Jesus is. It's our lives being turned upside down. It's our lives moving from separation from God to reunion with him. Moving from death to life. Moving from sin to grace and holy living. So would you imagine with me, if you would, and reflect on this. What if we found a way to bless someone who didn't deserve our blessing? What if we looked around us and instead of responding to people in anger, we blessed them? by praying for them and saying, you know, I must, I, you must be having a hard day. I'm going to pray for you. What if we cared more for the outsider than we do for ourselves? What if we cared more for those who hadn't yet experienced the love of Jesus than we did whether we get what we want that day, whether we're on time to where we're going? What if we as a church were known for being a people of mercy and compassion in the world around us? And flipping the questions, but the last one first, or the first one last, have you wrestled with God? Have you had that time when you've just been questioning him, that you've been wondering what he's doing? You know, the, uh, Jesus said in his prayer, uh, the Lord's prayer, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'd like to believe that that's a prophecy that could be fulfilled in our day. 
that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven today in the here and now and this this prophecy will come true and the uh in the bible the the covenants that god promised they were always unconditional because they relied on on god not on humanity but individual participation in those covenants was always optional so uh there was supposed to be an everlasting king in israel but david sinned his son sins his grandson sins and the kingdom was torn apart and so then we can go well there's supposed to be an everlasting king and so but the covenant the everlasting king of kings is jesus but israel disobeyed and so they weren't a part of that for a time and so us just likewise this prophecy will come true but may it come true in our lives may it come true in our in our church in our communities in our families in our lives so would you join me in praying this prayer of dedication of ourselves and then the worship team will come up and lead us overthrow us lord today we are like saul in our leadership turn us into new people with a heart for your peace we are like the assyrians who are boastful in power turn us to repentance with our reliance on ourselves and lord we are like jonah we're hesitant to extend your deliverance to our enemies speak to us as we sit on the hillside in safety that we might learn from you for all our decisions we are like hardened rock turn us into streams of living water overthrow us for the sake of your creation and for the sake of your gospel in the world amen